Well, good morning again, friends, uh, those here in person and those tuning in on the live stream. Uh, it's great to be together. Uh, and Alex, that was very well synced with Daryl Dash and Liberty Grace Church. It's like we planned it. We didn't, actually. We legitimately didn't plan it. That was perfect. We gave away Daryl's book earlier. And, uh, yeah, be praying for them. They're doing uh, exciting and challenging work in uh, the heart of Toronto in Liberty Village. Uh, whether you've been with us uh, from the beginning uh, at Heritage Grace Church, whether you've been with us from the beginning of our series through the book of Psalms or through a chunk of the book of Psalms uh, this summer, or whether you've never heard uh, anything about the Psalms or, or even read the Bible before, you can be refreshed and encouraged that the Bible is not silent on the tough stuff. The Bible doesn't uh, create a sugar-coated, you know, sunshine and rainbows perspective on life. As we've looked through, uh, for the majority of the Psalms that we've gone through, the reality is that life is hard. As we looked at last week, pain is real. And this morning, uh, we again encounter a tough Psalm, tough emotions. We encounter uh, another Psalm for another season. And that season, or the context, the lens that we look through Psalm 7 is this lens of injustice. Now, ever since sin entered the world, uh, there's been injustice. The list is long. Even if you looked at this past year, the list is long of the injustice that we see in the world. And although definitions would differ on what justice is, uh, different people have different agendas and different motives, most would argue that it is good and right and fair uh, to have justice, that justice is a good thing, right? It would be chaos apart from justice. That said, when we consider the topics of judgment and justice and we throw God into the mix, that we say, you know, God is a righteous judge, um, we can start to doubt. We can start to think, uh, well, what's that all about? Isn't God a God of love, not justice, not judgment? And maybe you're here this morning or you're tuning in and you're thinking exactly that, or you've thought that before. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're saying, that's the problem I have with the Bible. It feels inconsistent. It feels like, yeah, sure, you can say there's a God of love. I believe, you know, he's up there somewhere. He, he cares about us enough to, you know, keep us alive. But, you know, I have this issue with this God who is a judge. And how do those things work together? Even if you're a Christian, you may uh, you know, realize, man, this is tough to wrestle with. You know? And maybe you feel like, man, I can't even articulate this clearly to others. Right? How do we correlate the God of the Bible, a God of love, mercy, right? kindness, that's described, uh, as we'll see this morning, as a refuge, how do we correlate that with a God of justice who fairly punishes but still punishes sin? That's tough. And two, as we go into Psalm 7, we see injustice, this theme of injustice. What do we do when we face injustice? And again, we just add this to this mix of tension where we say God is a God of love, he's a refuge, God is a God of justice and judgment, and we face injustice. So how do we respond to injustice? Do we go to God? Do we call out to him to act justly, to be our refuge? Right? And if he does act justly, 
What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us this morning? What does that mean for us today? Is this good news that uh, we will be vindicated if God is just? But what about the times when we fall short where, um, you know, if we really say God should be just, he should, uh, you know, eliminate the evil in the world. Well, what about our own hearts that we know deep down are evil? There's a lot of tension building. I don't know, if you don't feel it, I feel it, to wrestle with. But it's in that tension that we swim into Psalm 7 this morning. I don't know what something hard to swim in would be, like jello. He's swimming in jello. We swim in this tension of Psalm 7, refuge, justice. How do we make sense of this? But this is a psalm where King David speaks clearly about God the refuge and God the judge, how we can make sense of these two things. And so our big idea this morning, kids, you can get your pencils ready. Our big idea is this. God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. Now we'll unpack that a fair bit as we go, but let's dig in. So Psalm 7, if you uh, have a Bible with you, I hope you do. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles over here. You can take one, and that's yours to keep if you don't own a Bible. Uh, but Psalms is kind of halfway through. If you just split your Bible in half, uh, hopefully you land in the Psalms. And that, uh, you just flip back until you see a big number seven. So Psalm 7. Now we see Psalm 7 has a title. Again, we've talked about this many times, so we'll talk about it again. There's a title that's in bold. Now that's been added later by the editors, typically. In my Bible here, it says, In You Do I Take Refuge. Uh, but then there's a section underneath that is a title, and this is part of the original text. Uh, and so in this one, there's a tough word here, a shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. There's a bunch of things going on in that title. First, a shigeon. Now, there seems to be no consensus on how to pronounce this word, so I apologize. But it's fun to say, shigeon. All right, kids, you can say it with me, shigeon. All right, yes, I heard one, I think. Uh, now, this word is an unknown word. Like a lot of the titles in the Psalms, we uh, generally see it as a musical or liturgical term. Kind of helps with the order, or the, the, the category or theme. This word shigeon is only, uh, we only find it once uh, other time in the Bible, and that's in Habakkuk 3, which also has similar themes of judgment. And so uh, that's really all we know about the word, but it doesn't change the way that we read this psalm, but just to, to you know, run head into the things that we don't understand. Uh, we also see this character introduced, the words of Cush, uh, a Benjaminite. Now, we don't know anything about this Cush guy. We don't, uh, we don't know what his deal is. Uh, But he seems like he's an enemy. I mean, David describes him later as an enemy. Um, He's a Benjaminite. And so we don't know the context of this like some of the other Psalms we run to. We know the exact situation and we have a a narrative of what the story is. We can kind of piece some things together. Uh, Saul, the former king, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. So maybe Cush has some affiliation or allegiance to him. Uh, The Benjaminites were also involved in Absalom's rebellion against David. And so whichever one of those, or maybe it's something completely unrelated, uh, as we'll see, this Cush guy, he slanders David. He makes false accusations. He spreads lies about David. And so this whole psalm, this song that David writes here, is in response to this slander, this false accusation. And so last week we considered real pain, real prayer, and real hope. We're kind of keeping that theme alive uh, this morning as we confront real injustice 
and real judgment. Those are our points this morning. Real injustice and real judgment. But let's read Psalm chapter 7, 1 through 17. O Lord, O Yahweh my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong on my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to Yahweh the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh the Most High. So we run into some tricky bits. I won't won't soft pedal there. There's some tough stuff that we run into in Psalm 7. And so let's dig in. Our first point, real injustice. We see David right away call out to the Lord. He says, O Lord, or as we see it's in all caps, we know in the Hebrew is God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. So, O Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. It's strong language, right? I get used to it, strong language throughout, but strong language at the beginning. It's not that, you know, he's saying about this Kushka, like, he said something mean about me, right? He's saying he's, he's making big accusations. We see that from the next few verses, that it's these lies that are being spread about David, but serious consequences. David's saying, lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it into pieces. Now, I don't know if you watch a lot of, you know, animal documentaries or National Geographic, But it's not the most pleasant experience when you watch a lion attack. They surround, they trap, they chase down. And it's quite graphic, the process that goes into, you know, jumping, pulling them down. I'll spare you the details. If uh, you stay with the friendly planet Earth ones, you can avoid some of that. But it's strong language that David uses. He's not saying, you know, my feelings are hurt. He's saying, it's like I'm being attacked by a lion. John MacArthur says this about slander. The effects of slander are always long-lived. Once lies about you have been circulated, it is extremely difficult to clear your name. It is a lot like trying to recover dandelion seeds after they have been thrown to the wind. 
And so slander has big consequences. And for David, we don't know the context of when this happened in his life, but as the king, if lies are being spread about him, there are serious consequences. And so he compares it to being torn apart by a lion. And he knew about lions. He, he took care of his sheep. He was a shepherd, and uh, he was familiar with the dangers, right? It's even less of a, a metaphor for him. But as we encounter this question about real, or this point about real injustice, I ask you, have you ever been slandered against? Do you know the pain of slander? Do you know the sting of lies about you? Maybe it's in your office, at your workplace. Maybe it's on the playground. Maybe it's on slander book, or Facebook. Uh, There's my dig at social media. Once a Sunday, it happens. But do you know the pain of slander? Maybe you have been there. Maybe you have had lies spread about you, and you say, you know what? I get this metaphor, this being torn apart by lions. My soul is torn apart. And we come to a place where, you know, we should self-reflect a little bit and say, how do I respond to slander? How do I respond to slander? And think about that. Actually think about that in your life. Let's say, even if it hasn't happened to you, someone spreads horrible lies, horrible lies about you. How would you respond? Maybe you'd want to get back. Maybe you'd slander them in return. Maybe you would defend your own name. You'd say, no, that's not true. You'd try to spread other things. Maybe you would take it into your own hands, you know, physically. Maybe that's how you solve your problem, with your fists. There's a lot of different responses, but I want you to really think, how would I respond when I'm slandered against? But we see how David responds. He's stuck. He says there's none to deliver, none to deliver. But he calls out to God, O oh, Yahweh my God, in you do I take refuge. He calls out to God who he knows he can take refuge in. When he faces the pain and the sting of real injustice, real slander, he goes to God. Now, hopefully, for most of us, we don't have to really think about the language of a refuge very often. Maybe we don't need that safe place. But there are a lot of places in the world, and certainly in this time, and we know from David's life, that this was, he was experienced in what, there was a need for real refuge, you know, a safe place, a hiding place, a fortress of sorts. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been abused, and you know the need to escape and be protected. But he calls out to God. He says, in you do I take refuge refuge. All right, kids, you might be able to think of being, uh, uh, having refuge. You know, when I see you all, you rip around, you play tag here after the service, which is amazing. I love it. All right, and you get to the bench, and you jump on the bench, and you say, I'm on T. I'm on timeout. You can't get me. That's a refuge. It's a safe place. You say, there's none to deliver. I'm caught. This guy's way faster than me. Boom, I'm on T. That's my refuge. That's my safe place. If you're anything like me, when I was a kid, I make my refuge, my tea place, wherever I am, to say, oh, you didn't know this one foot square, that was tea. But that's, that's what David's talking about with a much less, you know, cheeky idea. He's saying, in you do I take refuge. You are my safe place. In you I'm protected. And he models that. That's his first instinct, right? He goes to God. 
He also says, if we scan ahead to verse 10, he says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. My shield is with God. Literally translated, my shield bearer is God. My shield bearer is God. And we can see David's desperation through the psalm, but we also see his confidence that he's not even saying, you know, which is a helpful metaphor, that God is his shield, like he is his refuge. But he's saying, it's like I can't even hold my own shield. But I'm so confident in God who carries my shield. And you may have lived your whole life and you know the insecurity of being exposed to the world. You know the insecurity of being broken and you feel like you have no, that's just no option. There is no refuge. There is no shield. Or maybe you've put all your chips in on a refuge and a shield that you think will deliver you, but it turns out to stab you in the back. But David demonstrates a helpful instinct to run to God who is his refuge, who is his shield, his shield bearer. And so, so far, so good, right? This seems, okay, this is typical, you know, Bible language. I, you know, I need God as my shield. It's profound. I don't want to downplay it, but it seems so far so good. But then we get to verse 3. David says, O Lord, O Yahweh my God, if I have done this, whatever Cush is saying about me, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. This is, right, things take a, a bit of a turn here, right? Things get tricky. There's some real talk, right? We have real injustice, real judgment in the middle. We got this section of real talk where David goes to God with maybe a prayer that, that you and I haven't prayed. Right? David is bluntly honest with God says, if I'm guilty, right, of whatever this Cush guy said, of harming my friend, you know, of harming my enemy without cause, may I be cursed. Let the lions out. Right? Let them pursue me, overtake me, trample me, kill me. Again, strong language. But this is real talk. And so that's sort of the lens we see. David is saying, I am innocent. This is injustice, real injustice. And so I'm going to take it to the stage of real talk. I'm going to go to God and I'm going to say, if I'm guilty, let me have it. And we see that word selah, pause. So we see real injustice and it just keeps getting thicker and thicker, the tension, the jello we're swimming in. Real judgment. David doesn't stop. He calls on God to act. Verse 6. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous who you test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Real judgment. Real judgment. Right? David doesn't stop. He calls on God to act. And he's not calling for a slap on the wrist. He's calling God to judge his enemies for their sin and their slander. 
we see it's interesting. David doesn't just ask for judgment on his enemies. He includes himself in the whole mix. He asks for judgment on himself. Verse 8 is a hard verse, a hard verse. Yahweh judges the peoples. Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. To read this verse in isolation causes us trouble. If you are familiar with the Bible at all, you know that no one is righteous apart from God. No one is righteous. We only have to look at a few verses in Romans to be reminded of that. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Sounds pretty emphatic. Romans 3.23, For all, not some, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages, the penalty, the punishment for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a glimmer of hope there at the end. But what, what are we encountering here? We're seeing no one is righteous. No, not one. And so what's David saying here? And maybe this is your problem with, uh, maybe you've bumped into these themes of, you know, God is a refuge. God is judgment. I got a problem with this God. Maybe you say, well, what's up with the Bible? And in one section, you know, someone is saying, God, judge me according to my righteousness. But then in another section, it's saying, no one is righteous. Is the Old Testament, what we're in today, consistent with the New Testament, what I just read? What we see here is it doesn't have to be so tense. It doesn't have to be so muddy. So what's David saying here? Well, we're seeing that David is not sinless. David is not claiming to be sinless. We know that David knows he's not sinless. First of all, we know the stories of his life. He is far from a perfect man. And uh, we see it in his own confessions. Another psalm that he wrote, uh, Psalm 51, says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Now, does that sound like a man who doesn't know that he's sinned? David knows that he is a sinner. He knows that he has made mistakes, serious mistakes. He knows that he has rebelled against God. But in this case, in Psalm 7, David is appealing to his innocence, not his sinlessness. David is appealing to his innocence, not his sinlessness. In this case, these lies that Cush is saying about him, they are not true. He has closely looked at his own heart, and he calls on God to act. And that in this case, he's innocent. These are lies being spread about him. So he calls on God for judgment. It doesn't imply that he can pull a fast one on God. Verse 9, the second mind, he describes God as someone who tests the minds and hearts, O righteous God. The translation, this mind and heart, uh, translates directly to hearts and kidneys. It's like God knows our insides. He knows deep down what we feel, what we think, what we say. And so David says, test the minds and hearts right down to the guts. He says, God knows deep down the sin we think nobody knows about. 
Is there sin in your life that you need to confess this morning? And we can swing this pendulum too far either way. We can dwell in our sin and feel like we can't go to God. Or we can swing it all the way to say, man, I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. Uh, you know, I'm a saint. The Bible describes me as a saint. Well, that's true. The Bible does describe uh, Christians as saints. But you are a saint who still sins. And sin is toxic. If you have sin in your life, confess it to God. Bring it into the light. Uh, I have a quote here from Gerald Wilson. I often quote from a guy named Jared Wilson. This is a different guy. Gerald Wilson says this. The idea of God as refuge is a wonderful and important gift to all of us who live in the midst of a broken world. And that is all of us, whether we realize it or not. But sometimes we can take that refuge so for granted that we become almost exclusively focused on the sense of security, love, and acceptance that God provides. We forget that entering the refuge of God provides means, uh, the refuge God provides means entering the presence of God himself. And that is not something to be undertaken lightly or unadvisedly. God is a righteous judge. What is a righteous judge? What would be a good judge? If you had to paint a picture of a good judge, it'd be a judge who sees the problem, it diagnoses it correctly, and enacts judgment. Not just someone who lets people off scot-free. Like, oh yeah, well, you killed somebody? Well, that seems, uh, yeah, you, I'll let you go on this one. That's not a righteous judge. A righteous judge is someone who rightly judges. And David describes, verse 11, this is our big idea. God is a righteous judge, Period. Right? That's, that's the, our big idea. Right? We see, and a God who feels indignation every day. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. So let him be your refuge. A refuge must be entered to be effective. Repent of your sin, cling to God. David then shares the troubling prospect, and I, I get that these are tough words. Verses 12 and 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. You don't have to pretend that those are easy verses to read. Right? Kids, what does it mean to wet a sword? Do you guys know? wet a sword. No, adults, what does it mean to wet a sword? Sharpen, right? Talk to any woodworker, right? Use a wet stone, get those tools so sharp that you could shave the hair, slice a piece of paper. Right? Saying God is sharpening his sword. Right? His figurative bow is bent. That's tough language. Just as we cannot escape an all-knowing God knowing our hearts, we also can't escape a God who is a righteous judge, a good judge, a right judge, who executes real justice. I get that these words are strong, but sometimes you need strong words for warning. Right? If Pete was walking on train tracks and I saw a train coming, I wouldn't say, hey, Pete, there's a train that might bump into you. I would use some probably strong words to say, get off the train. You don't know what that thing's going to do to you. 
Intense language communicates intense truths at times. And so we see these verses, and we need to run into these verses as a warning and an invitation to repent. And I understand it's not pleasant, but that's what they are. We all have sinned. We all have a heart problem. Look at the words David describes for our hearts and our sin. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. We have a heart problem. We are our own worst enemies. Try as we may, we sin. Reminds me of Wiley Coyote in his endless adventure to try to get the roadrunner. You know what I'm talking about? Beep, beep, right? And he does these big elaborate things to try to get the roadrunner. And what always happens, the boulder falls on his head. He falls off the cliff. He gets hit by the train. It's always him. He devises these big schemes. It always turns around and gets him. As much as that's a funny cartoon to watch, that's the futility of living in this unrepentant sin. We fall into the pit that we've dug. And so what hope could we possibly have? I get that this is pretty doom and gloom, all right? But we have two truths here. God is a righteous judge, and we are depraved sinners. So how could we ever say with David, verse 8, Yahweh judges the peoples. Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity of that is in me. How could we ever say that? How could we ever say something like that? Well, God wasn't and isn't ignorant of the situation, of that situation that we're in, that we could never measure up. We are rebellious sinners. I know you don't like that. I don't like that. But we are rebellious sinners. Yet God, in his mercy, made a way for us to be made right with him. He sent his son, Jesus, into the world to actually live a righteous life, that life we could never live. No one is righteous apart from Christ. He sent Jesus into the world to live a perfectly righteous life, the life we could never live, yet he died the death that we deserved. We saw the wages of sin. The penalty for sin is death. And so Jesus, the only righteous person who ever lived, died the death that we deserved. That's real injustice. The most unjust thing that ever happened was that. And he did that so that we could be made right with God. That in his death and his resurrection, he rose again on the third day, demonstrating that God's righteous judgment, his justice had been satisfied. The debt was paid. And that for us, by repenting from turning from our sin and believing in Jesus as our righteousness, we could be made right with God. That when God looks at us, he would no longer see us in our sin because that's been taken on by Jesus, but he would see Jesus' righteousness on us. It sounds too good to be true, but that's the good news. That's the gospel, that Jesus faced the figurative lions that we deserved, who pursued, overtook, verse five, trampled, killed. Jesus faced that razor-sharp sword, the flaming arrows, He faced the nails that pinned him to that Roman torture device 2,000 years ago. 
And on Jesus fell the violence deserved only by sinners. But more than simply violence, he took on his own head, on his shoulders, the weight of the sin of the world. Run to God who is your refuge. Trust in him. Don't try to work your way to righteousness. By just being a good person, it's like an ink stain in the carpet. You take a wet cloth and you just try to keep dabbing it out. The more water gets in there, the more that ink stain just spreads and spreads and spreads. Don't try to work your way to righteousness. Our only hope is Christ. Right? Or like a spider web. I think it's a Jonathan Edwards illustration. A spider web trying to catch a stone. That's how useless our efforts are to try to work our way to righteousness. But it is Christ's righteousness that we appeal to, knowing that he did live the life that we could never live. And that gives us the ability to say with David in verse 17, I will give to Yahweh the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh the Most High. Now we still need to go to God as our refuge with sober reflection. He knows our sinful hearts, but he knows and loves you in your weakness. Don't let that stop you from running to him. Let him be your refuge. This is how we can read these verses that are really tough. I'm with you. They're tough. They're tough to read in your quiet time. They're tough to read in front of a group of people. But this is how we can make sense of this. This idea of judgment, knowing that the price has been paid. The price has been paid. I beat this verse to death. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Judgment is condemnation. There is a price for the sin and the rebellion that we live in. But God made a way for that to be paid for. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's how we can read a verse like verse 8. When David appeals to his innocence in this situation, we can appeal to Christ's righteousness on our behalf. We can say, judge me, O Lord, according to Christ's righteousness and integrity. And that can turn our hearts to praise, like David. In verse 17, I will give to Yahweh the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh the Most High. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And God, we confess that we struggle with the tricky bits. But God, we praise you because you are just. You are good. And we thank you that you made a way for us to be made right with you, that we don't have to dwell in the bad news of the judgment of our sin, but that we can celebrate the good news, that we can be made right with you. God, help us to understand that in this life there is real injustice and that as humans we face real judgment. God, help us to rest in the fact that there is good news, that there is hope. And help us to have a peace beyond understanding. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.